Often it seems as if the proud always tend to get their way. Their boasting and insubordinate attitude often seems to be the last word. But that was not the case for the Babylonians. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Riken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're enjoying an expositional study in the book of Jeremiah. In today's passage, Jeremiah prophesies the destruction of Babylon, the captors of the people of God. God hears the cry of His people, and He is not one who tolerates a boastful attitude, especially a contrary attitude. Well, Phil, today's message deals with the second of two great acts of redemption in the Old Testament. Can you please explain the significance of those two events? Well, Mark, the first great saving event of the Old Testament, of course, is the Exodus, Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And then the second great deliverance is Israel's return from exile in Babylon. And that's the great event prophesied at the end of the book of Jeremiah, the destruction of the city of Babylon. And after their years in exile, the people of God experience a mighty deliverance. What does this deliverance teach us about our salvation in Christ? Well, Mark, you'll hear in today's message a number of blessings that God gave to his people in destroying Babylon. You see, the destruction of Babylon was the deliverance of Israel. And we see in today's passage lessons about repentance and about redemption and about God's faithfulness to his covenant and how he's going to provide a good shepherd for his people. I mean, all of these things are things that we have in Christ. We have redemption through his blood. We have the gift of repentance by the work of his spirit. And Jesus is for us a shepherd who is faithful to the very death. And I hope, Mark, as our listeners hear today's message, that they will be refreshed in the joy of the salvation that we have in Jesus. All right. Thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 50 and listen to God's word for us today. The English poet Percy Shelley once wrote a sonnet about a statue lying broken in the desert sand. Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand half sunk, a shattered visage lies. That is to say, the head or face of the statue. And although that statue lay in pieces, its inscription remained. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You see, Shelley's poem is about the end of an empire. It mocks the pride of this man, Ozymandias, who styled himself the king of kings. His name no longer strikes fear into anyone's heart because his kingdom lies buried in the desert. And in this 50th chapter of Jeremiah, God promises that the same thing will happen to Nebuchadnezzar and all the cruel kings of Babylon. That 
mighty empire will be toppled and buried in the sand. I suppose, in a way, this is the climax of Jeremiah's book. For decades he has prophesied that one by one Babylon will conquer all the kingdoms of the Middle East and become the greatest empire in the world. And he insisted all along that resistance was futile. Babylon was an instrument in God's hand, and so the Babylonians were to be respected. In fact, they were even to be prayed for. Yet here at the end of his book, Jeremiah shows that they were not a law unto themselves. Like all the other superpowers of the world, they must answer to God for their sins. I suppose the whole chapter is summarized in verse 15. This is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, do to her as she has done to others. This chapter, I suppose, this verse is the biblical version of what goes around comes around. Having judged all the other nations of the world, including Israel, God now turns his attention to that great enemy, Babylon. Jeremiah begins his prophecy with a shout of triumph. Announce and proclaim among the nations, lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back but say, Babylon will be captured, Bel will be put to shame, Marduk filled with terror. God will triumph over Babylon and over the gods of Babylon. Once Jeremiah has issued this news flash, he spends most of the rest of the chapter giving the details of how God's triumph will come about. Verse 9, I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. Verse 41, look, an army is coming from the north, a great nation and many kings. As we read the chapter, we discover that these nations are taking their marching orders from God himself. He gives the orders, for example, in verse 14, take up your positions around Babylon, shoot at her. Spare no arrows. Shout against her on every side. And then almost before the battle begins, it is over. She surrenders. Her towers fall. Her walls are torn down. Many of the details in Jeremiah's blow-by-blow account of the battle are highly sarcastic. I'll mention just one or two of them. You look in Verse 22, you see how the prophet says, How broken and shattered is the hammer of the whole earth. You see, Babylon was used to doing all the hammering. But now she herself will be pounded into submission. Here's another irony. Babylon, which once laid siege to Jerusalem, will itself be surrounded. That's the picture that we have in verse 29. Summon archers against Babylon, all those who draw the bow, encamp all around her, let no one escape. As the assault continues, everyone and everything in Babylon will come under attack. In verses 35 through 37, there is a sort of poem to the sword. A sword against the Babylonians, a sword against her false prophets, a sword against her warriors, a sword against her horses and chariots, a sword 
against her treasures. One scholar comments that the repetitious, irresistible hammering of destructive force uses no verbs. The action is too abrupt. The assault is too quick. And indeed, the story of the fall and capture of Babylon in 539 B.C. is a remarkable one. The attack did come, as God promised, from the north of the city, and it was made by a coalition of armies led by Cyrus the Persian. According to one account, Cyrus made his successful assault on a night when the whole city, relying on the strength of the walls, had given themselves up to the riot and debauchery of a grand public festival, and the king and his nobles were reveling at a splendid entertainment. Cyrus caused a canal to be cleared out in order to turn the river Euphrates into it, which by this means was rendered so shallow that his soldiers were able to penetrate along its bed into the city. That attack was just the first blow that Babylon suffered. By the time God finished, nothing but wasteland remained. That's what Jeremiah promised. We see it in verses 39 and 40. Desert creatures and hyenas will live there. And there the owl will dwell. It will never again be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, so no one will live there. No man will dwell in it. You see, Babylon thus endured the same fate as Ozymandias. First the empire was toppled, and then it was buried in the sand. And now travelers who walk in that land find nothing but ruins in the sand. This is how one scholar described what happened to that great city. From the fall of Babylon, its importance declined. It revolted against Darius, who broke down all its gates and reduced its walls. Under the Persians, Babylon continued to decline. Under Augustus, Babylon had become so desolate that it might be called a vast desert. From this time onward, Babylon ceases almost to be mentioned. The whole aspect of the region is dreary and forlorn. It is infested by noxious animals. And perhaps in no place under heaven is the contrast between ancient magnificence and present desolation greater than there. Now, these are all matters of historical fact. What remains to give is their theological interpretation. And we have it here in this chapter of Scripture. It's the news that was carried back to Jerusalem when Babylon first fell. We find it in verse 28. You see, the Jews knew who had defeated Babylon and why. Listen to the fugitives and refugees from Babylon declaring in Zion how the Lord our God has taken vengeance for his temple, that temple carried off by the Babylonians. You see, God brings down the proud. He humiliates the arrogant. He destroys the violent. And although for a time Babylon ruled supreme over all the world, in the end God had the last word as he always does. And this 
story of the defeat of Babylon is partly a story of defeat, one of the greatest defeats in the history of the world, but it is also a story of victory for the people of God. For the destruction of God's enemies means salvation for God's people. And in this passage, we are reminded of five blessings of salvation, every one of which points us forward to salvation in Jesus Christ. First, redemption. The fall of Babylon was one of the two great acts of redemption of the Old Testament. The first was the Exodus, when God brought His people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And the second was the return from exile, when God brought His people out of the city of Babylon and led them back home. God's people were in bondage to Babylon. Like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar would not let God's people go. Jeremiah says in verse 33, the people of Israel are oppressed. Their captors hold them fast, refusing to let them go. So when God destroyed the Babylonians, Jeremiah described it as redemption. We find that word in verse 34, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord Almighty is His name. Here the Lord is called by one of His best names, Redeemer. In the Hebrew, it's Goel, kinsman Redeemer. A kinsman Redeemer in those days had the responsibility to rescue his family members from slavery and to avenge all their enemies. You may know the story of Boaz, who was a Redeemer when he rescued his cousin Ruth from poverty and slavery. God Himself described himself as a redeemer, as a goel, when he rescued his people from Egypt. Now he will redeem his people again. He is a strong redeemer. As verse 34 goes on to say, he will vigorously defend their cause so that he may bring rest to their land, but unrest to those who live in Babylon. Here God is described as a lawyer as a legal advocate. And this is quite a reversal. If you have a good memory, you may remember that way back in Jeremiah chapter 2, God was actually prosecuting His people. He was a lawyer then too, but He was bringing charges against them. And now He goes from being a prosecuting attorney to being a defense attorney so that He can redeem His people from slavery. That name... Redeemer must have been precious to every exile who was brought out of Babylon and brought back home to Jerusalem. That term, Redeemer, is more precious still to everyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And then it gives this wonderful answer, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ redeemed His people from sin and death on the cross. On the cross, He was paying for their sins and releasing them from their bondage and captivity to sin. Jesus Christ released us from the bondage to our guilt. He bought us back from sin and from death and from the devil. And most amazing of all, Christ accomplished this redemption with His own blood. 
You know, the Jews who were saved from their exile in Babylon were redeemed at the expense of the Babylonians. In fact, God says as much in verse 29, Repay her for her deeds. Do to her as she has done. And yet we have been redeemed from our captivity to sin at God's expense. For you know that it was not with perishable things as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. The second blessing of salvation is repentance. When God's people were redeemed, they did not just go back to their city, they also went back to their God. And this is how Jeremiah describes it. In those days, I'm reading from verse 4, at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. When Jeremiah talks about seeking God with tears, he's talking about repentance. He's talking about sorrow for sin. And as we read the story of these exiles in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, among other places, we find that the story of their return from exile is well lubricated with tears. When Ezra read the law of God in Jerusalem, the people wept as they listened to the words of the law. They were keenly aware of their sin. And later, when Ezra heard that his people were marrying pagans, he tore his tunic, pulled his hair out, and fell to the ground in true repentance. And while Ezra was confessing and weeping before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they, too, wept bitterly. Turning back to God means turning away from sin. Turning away from sin means being sorry for sin. A sinner who grasps the holiness of God and who receives the mercy of God in and through Jesus Christ must weep over his sins. It is a grievous thing to sin against such a holy and merciful God. And so true repentance is always tinged with sorrow. We see it in the tax collector who prayed in the temple, and he wept as he prayed, and he could not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Peter wept when he denied the Christ after the rooster crowed that third time. He went outside the city and wept bitterly. Now, God does not base his forgiveness on our tears of repentance, but since we are such great sinners, we must in some way be touched by the anguish of our sin. The Shorter Catechism also asks, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. And that mention of grief teaches that Christian repentance ought often to be accompanied by tears. 
You see, cheerful repentance is one of the blessings of salvation. It's one of the promises of God. Once you grasp the holiness of God and receive the mercy of God in Christ, even the least sin becomes a grievous thing. And we ought to be reminded by this Scripture to turn away from sin and to come back to God the way the exiles did, as necessary, with tears. The third blessing of salvation is the covenant. Indeed, all of the promises of God, all of the blessings of salvation are bound together in the covenant of grace. It's what we find in the next verse. The exiles set their faces toward the city of God. They ask the way to Zion. They turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. This is one way to describe what it means to be a Christian. You bind yourself to God in covenant. You become a member of the church, God's covenant community. You are baptized. You receive the sign of God's covenant. You identify yourself as a Christian living the covenant life. You sit down to communion, sitting down to God's covenant meal. These are all ways of keeping covenant with God. And yet when Jeremiah mentions the everlasting covenant, he is not speaking about our covenant with God. He's talking about God's covenant with us. I suppose Jeremiah might be called the prophet of the covenant. All the way through the early chapters of his book, he shows how God's people broke the old covenant. Back in chapter 11, he announced the terms of the covenant. He pronounced the curses of the covenant. And in chapter 31, he lamented the breakup of this covenant. They broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But Jeremiah is the prophet of the covenant, not just because he shows how God's people broke the covenant, he also promises a new covenant. This is what we saw back in chapter 31, that new covenant written on the mind and in the heart, that New covenant which makes God our God and makes us His people. And here in chapter 50, Jeremiah adds one further thing to those promises. This new covenant will be an everlasting covenant which will not be forgotten. This points out the problem with the old covenant, forgetfulness. God's people forgot the covenant and they forgot God, and they forgot their obligation to serve God in the covenant. And what's new about the new covenant is that it will never be forgotten. It will last forever. Of course, the only way that the new covenant could ever be everlasting is because the new covenant comes to us in Jesus Christ. His comments on this passage, Calvin observes that this prophecy cannot otherwise be explained than of Christ's spiritual kingdom. I think Jeremiah gives us a clue that he's speaking and thinking about the Christ in verse 4 when he says, in those days at that time. This is the way Jeremiah usually marks off his messianic prophecies, his prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Of course, the reason the new covenant will never be forgotten is because God's own Son will remember it. The new covenant depended on us, it 
could never last forever. We're constantly forgetting God and forgetting our duty to God. But this new covenant does not depend upon us. It depends upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We enter the covenant in and through him. Christ keeps the covenant for us. Charles Spurgeon once imagined what it must have been like when God the Son made his covenant promises to God the Father in eternity past. He imagined it like this, My Father, on my part I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world. I will work out a spotless righteousness acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time I will bear the sins of all my people. The chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will endure the curse of thy law. I will then rise again. I will ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at thy right hand, and I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of those whom thou hast given me shall ever be lost. But I will bring all my sheep safe to thee at last. Now, we do not know what words, if he used any words at all, God the Son used when he made the promises of the covenant, but we know from the Scriptures that he kept every one of these promises. He did become a man. He did obey the law. He did undergo the sufferings and the curse of God against our sin. He did die on the cross. And he was raised from the dead. And he will and he must keep each of his sheep to the very end. And that mention of sheep reminds us of a fourth blessing of salvation, and it's one that Jeremiah mentions that God will provide a good shepherd. Now, Jeremiah had seen plenty of bad shepherds in his day. In fact, one of the things he often accused the other spiritual leaders of was pastoral malpractice. We find it many times in his book, The Shepherds Are Senseless. He complains, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. And that's the problem with bad shepherds. They don't look after the sheep very well. So the people of God had become what you might call the lost sheep of the Old Testament. We find them in verse 6. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. And what God's people need is a shepherd, a good shepherd. They need a shepherd to find them and to rescue them and to bring them back to the fold. And therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says in verses 18 and 19, I will bring Israel back to his own pasture. And he will graze on Carmel and Bashan. His appetite will be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. And these verses look forward to everything that the Bible says about that good shepherd, Jesus Christ. When the sheep are scattered, 
Jesus Christ is that good shepherd who goes out to find them and to rescue them and to bring them back home. When the sheep are in need, Jesus Christ is that good shepherd who leads them into quiet pastures, leads them beside the still waters. In fact, what Jeremiah says in that verse 19 when he says his appetite will be satisfied is literally his soul will be satisfied. It's an echo of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul. When the sheep are in danger, Jesus Christ is that good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I wonder if Jeremiah realized just how good our good shepherd would turn out to be. There has never been a better shepherd, no shepherd more zealous to find the sheep when they are lost, no shepherd more eager to bring them back home and to rejoice over their coming, no shepherd willing to pay such a great price for their salvation. You know this shepherd Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. If you do not know this good shepherd, he invites you to come to him as one of his sheep. If you do know this good shepherd, then he invites you to trust in him. He has already done so much to rescue you and to save you. Will he not also take care of every physical and every emotional and every spiritual need that each of his sheep has, surely he will and he must. And then finally, there is one more salvation promise in this chapter. It's, I suppose, the most remarkable of all. We've read it several times now. It comes in verse 20. It's the promise that search will be made for Israel's guilt, that there will be none, and for the sins of Judah but none will be found. You know, if someone wants to look for the sins of Israel, I suppose the best place to look is in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, the book is filled with the sins and with the guilt of God's people. Jeremiah has taken great pains to document these sins in all their sordid detail. Homicide, infanticide, adultery, idolatry, lying and cheating and stealing, and all the rest of the sins, all recorded in these pages. Now, Jeremiah imagines someone going on a quest to discover the sins of Israel. And as he describes it, the quest turns out to be futile. They search, but they search in vain. They can find no sin, no guilt. And this is what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross. He was doing away with sin. He was doing away with it in such a way that it would never be found or discovered again. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ atoned for all the sins of all his people, all the sins of everyone who believes and trusts in him. You might think of this as the doctrine of the unlimited atonement. If you know Jesus Christ, then all your sins are forgiven. All the sins you committed before you came to Christ no matter how heinous, no matter how reprehensible they were, 
and all of the sins that you have committed since you came to Christ, and all of the sins you will commit in the future, each and every last one of them, all of your secret sins, as well as all of your revealed sins, your small sins, as well as your big sins. Every last sin was paid for on the cross. On the cross, Christ died for every sin of every believer in every age throughout the whole history of the church. Philip Bliss once wrote a wonderful hymn about the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It's usually referred to by its first line, Man of sorrows, what a name. The middle verse of that hymn expresses the wonder of the unlimited atonement. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise that all the blessings of salvation come to us in Christ. We give you praise and thanks for this, most of all, that our shepherd shed his own blood for our sins, and they are remembered no more. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.